Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Dr. Bruce Lipton, a cell biologist who has discovered a major breakthrough having to do with cells, consciousness, and the biology of belief. In fact, he is the author of The Biology of Belief, Unleashing the Power of Consciousness, Matter, and Miracles, and co-wrote his new book with Steve Behrman called Spontaneous Evolution, Our Positive Future and a Way to Get There from Here. Bruce Lipton is a pioneer. And what we are finding out through his efforts is that the mind controls the body through placebo and through other means that DNA does not control our body and our health this is a mind-blowing breakthrough that was represented in the biology of belief. Spontaneous evolution takes us into the realm of the morphogenic field, into spontaneous remission and healing, into how the mind controls the immune system and beliefs control biology. We talk about epigenetics and how 70% of what we think is really negative and redundant, but there's so much more. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome pioneer, cell biologist, author, and speaker, Dr. Bruce Lipton. Welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. Kim, thank you so very, very much, and thank all the people out there, the inquiring, inquisitive minds that uh, are open to hear some exciting and uh, very empowering information. Thank you. For those people who have not read your books yet and have not heard about you, I want to do a quick frame of reference about the cell membrane and why the cell membrane is important and related to the mind and the body. Okay, well, let's first, uh, I'll, I'll talk about the very simple experiment that just blew my mind. And I, I was a professor in a medical school and I was cloning stem cells. Actually, my I started cloning stem cells in 1967. So uh, well, that's 45 years ago I was working on stem cells. And uh, a lot of people think they're relatively new in our world. And the fact is, no, uh, I was back there with some pioneers in the original days with stem cells. And here's what I did, uh, and, and I'll explain it, and then it, hopefully the the experiment go, oh my God, I hope you say that. Uh, and it works like this. Um, I would isolate one stem cell. Stem cells are multi-potential cells, like an embryonic cell in your body. Your body is filled with these stem cells uh, for a very simple reason is that every day you lose hundreds of billions of your cells just to aging and damage. And so you have to replace hundreds of billions of cells a day. And the question is, well, where do you get them from? The answer is stem cells. So uh, if you're alive, you have lots of stem cells because uh, otherwise without stem cells, you, you would die out very quickly if you couldn't replace the, the bad, damaged cells. So we all have stem cells, multi-potential, the equivalent of embryonic cells. I put one cell in a Petri dish. It divides every 10 or 12 hours. So uh, first one cell, then two, and then four cells, eight, 16 cells, 32 cells, etc. A couple weeks, I've got thousands of cells in the Petri dish. But here's the fact. They all came from the same parent cell. So by definition, they're genetically identical. That's the clone. They're genetically identical cells, thousands of them. Well, that's not the experiment. This is the experiment. I take the cells out of that big one dish and split them up into three smaller dishes. And I feed each one a culture medium. The culture medium is the environment. Cells are, are like fish. You have to put them in an aquarium, and you have to you know, put in the, the stuff that they live off of in that aquarium. So I put culture medium into dishes, and here's what I did. I had three dishes with genetically identical cells, but I added culture medium with slightly different chemical composition. So the environment was different in each of the three dishes. In one dish, the cells form muscle. The second dish, the cells form bone. And in the third dish, the cells form fat cells. And then you're left with a very interesting question. What controls the fate of the cells? Well, the first thing is this. They were all genetically identical, so you can't say the genes controlled this. The fact they didn't. It was the environment. It was the composition of that culture medium. Uh, as I changed the chemistry of the culture medium, I changed the genetics and the fate of the cells. And it's like, oh, my God, the, the cell is not being controlled by the genes. It's controlled by the response to the environment. I go, okay, now... Big jump, but so profoundly important. Oh, before I say that, just I love this. Take my dish of stem cells from a healthy environment and put it into a less than optimum environment, and the cells start to get sick and they begin to die, and the culture crashes. 
if you were looking at this as a medical doctor and you'd look at my sick cells in the dish, you'd say, boy, you should give them some drugs. And I go, <laughs> no, absolutely not. You want the cells to get healthy? There's one simple way, and that is take the dish from the bad environment, put it back in the good environment, and the cells will instantaneously get well. The point is the state of the cell is a reflection of the environment. Okay? Now, cells in a plastic dish, interesting, but let me talk to us about humans. When you look in the mirror and see yourself, Kim, you see one individual looking back. You say, yeah, that's one human being. I go, well, there's a misperception because we're not a one thing. Because by definition, a human is created from 50 trillion cells. So by definition, a human is a community of cells. In fact, by definition, a human is a skin-covered Petri dish. Because <laughs> under your skin, you got 50 trillion cells. And then I say, yeah, and you got growth medium. The growth medium is called blood, okay? So here's the simple point. Whether the cells are in a skin-covered dish or whether the cells are in a plastic dish, they still respond exactly the same to the environmental information. In the plastic dish, we call it growth medium. In the skin-covered dish, we call it blood. I say, yeah, so the composition of the blood determines the fate of cells. I go, yes. I say, then what determines the chemical composition of my blood? And they go, ah, the brain. The brain releases chemistry like hormones and emotional factors and growth regulators into the blood, which control our biology. And I go, cool. And then the next step I say is, but which chemistry is released into the blood? And I go, uh-huh, it's based on your mind. What you are seeing and what you are responding to in the world, the mind translates that into chemistry, which is released into the blood, which in turn affects the cells. So I say, oh, so for example, if you're in love and you open up your eyes and see love, your brain releases into your blood uh, chemicals such as dopamine and oxytocin and uh, vasopressin and nerve growth factor. These are chemicals that give enhancement to the cells. So when you're loved, guess what? You're healthier. You're happier. You have more energy. Uh, it, it's, that's because the mind translated uh, the image of love into a chemistry that gives your body health and energy. That's why we, you know, being in love is so great. And I say, well, wait. What if I open my eyes and I see something that scares me? I go, oh, oh well, you don't release the oxytocin and dopamine and that stuff. You release cortisol, stress factors, uh, inflammatory agents such as histamine. Uh, uh, basically, you release different chemistry in the blood, so that's changing the growth medium. I go, yeah. And I say, well, the composition of the growth medium determines the genetics and fate of the cells. So it says, ah, when you're in love, you release a growth medium that provides you with health. And when you're in fear, you create a growth medium that actually shuts down your growth and shuts down your system as it conserves energy to, to prepare for the threat. This is profound because what this means is that happiness actually induces chemicals that are connected to it. Absolutely. How do you know you were happy? You felt it. How did you feel it? Because the chemistry in your body is creating the emotion. But the chemistry that creates the emotion is the same chemistry that regulates the functions of the cells. So it's like, ah, then the way you were experiencing and expressing your life is controlling the expression of yourself. I go, that is the critical point. Because, Kim, look, almost everyone uh, out there was programmed with the same thing that I was programming medical students with when I was teaching in medical school, and that was genes control our lives. And I go, well, if genes control your life, I say, well, did you pick the genes that you have? And you go, well, not that I know. I say, if you don't like the traits... Uh, can you change the genes? I go, no. I say, if you've got cancer running in your family, are you going to get these so-called genes? And so, well, as far as I know, yeah. And all of a sudden you say, oh, my God, I'm a victim. A victim of what? My heredity. It's these genes that can that cause me to get sick. It's these genes that cause me to de be depressed. It's these genes that cause these problems. And I, I just receive the genes, and they control me. That's the old belief. That's called genetic control, which simply means control by genes. Then I go, what about the new science? Well, that's the new science that was like the, the story of the cells in the in tissue culture. It said those cells were all genetically identical, but the fate wasn't controlled by the genes. It was controlled by the cells' response to the environment. I go, wait, then my cells are not controlled by my genes, but they're controlled by the environment, which is the blood, which is the connection to my mind, <laughs> what's in it. And I go, well, all of a sudden I say, guess what? You're free to change your mind. You're free to change your perceptions. 
Well, why is that important? Because it's your mind and perceptions that release the chemistry that control your biology. So as you change your mind and you change your perception, you control your biology. All of a sudden it's like, oh my God, old story, genetic control. I'm a victim. New story, which is now called epigenetic control. And, and people are not familiar with that word, epigenetics, and they go, oh, it sounds like genetic control. It's just that little epi in the front. I go, oh, that little epi changes and the whole civilization for this reason. The little prefix epi means above. So when I say epidermis, I'm talking about skin. Yeah, but skin is the layer above the dermis, so it's called epidermis, above the dermis. I say, oh, then epi is above. I say, so what is epigenetic control? And I go, oh, control above the genes. Oh, my God, this is a revolution. The old belief, genes control who you are. You're a victim because the genes are controlling you, and you didn't pick them, and you can't change them. New science, epigenetic control. Your mind, your perceptions, your response to the environment, release chemicals into the blood, which is the culture medium, which in turn controls the genetics and the behavior of the cell. And why is that important? Because if you change your mind and change perception, then by definition, you change the culture medium. And when you change the culture medium, you change the fate of the cell. So all of a sudden it's like, we're not victims, we're masters. We can change our beliefs. We can change our responses to the world. And as we do that, we then control our genetics and our health. I have a couple of questions. This is so exciting. Why do you think it is Ray Kurzweil is very interested in genetics and other people around the world are so deeply invested and interested thinking you can switch on and off genes and then that's considered the frontier to health and well-being? Well, how are they switching on and off genes? I don't know. Well, the fact is this. I, I'm already telling you right now, you switch on and off the genes just by the way you look at the world. So basically it says our consciousness is controlling our biology. And it's like, absolutely. And that's why uh, when we change our, our consciousness, we change our biology immediately. And that's why uh, the, the simple, uh, interesting pathological correlation that people uh, are familiar with but haven't connected, and that is multiple personalities. What does that mean? Well, a person has this personality, and then a minute later they end up in this other personality, and they could then switch back to the other. I said, well, that's really neat. And we see, oh, my God, they are so behaviorally different from one personality to the other. And I go, yeah, not only that, but look at their biology. Their biology changes when they go from personality to personality. They can have an allergic response in personality A, switch into personality B, the allergic response is gone. Switch back into personality A, the allergic response is back. Uh, they, they may have to wear glasses for corrective vision in personality A, and they switch into personality B, they have to take the glasses off because they have 20-20 vision. They could be diabetic in personality A and normal in personality B. It's like, wow, the biology changes. Yeah, eye color changed from personality A to personality B and back again to the original color when they go back to A. It's wild. What is it? What is it's it? It's a pathological uh, expression, but it's profound instruction. It said each personality had its own physiological correlates. And it says that when you change the personality, you change, you change the physiology, but you also change the genetics, too. So what is the genetics world? How are they receiving this breakthrough of yours? Well, when I first started talking about this back in 1985, when I started coming public on what I was finding in the research, uh, they called me a radical extremist weirdo and uh, <laughs> dissed everything I said. And if I went and gave that same lecture today, the same scientists would say, hey, what are you saying that's new? <laughs> and so I laugh at it because when I started in 1985, I was a radical, crazy man. And in 2012, I'm boring the hell out of them. <laughs> wild. This is really very, very powerful. It turns pharmacology upside down, doesn't it? It says, yes, it says basically... If we really understand what to do with this, is keep off the pharmaceutical drugs. <laughs> and the reason is this. You are creating the issues of your body through the way you respond to the world, through the programs you received as an infant. Uh, your life has been programmed to that degree. If, if you're expressing an illness, I go back to the Petri dish. 
And I say, I put my Petri dish, the plastic dish, in a bad environment, the cells get sick, and then if you, I said, if a doctor looked at my cells, they say, oh, you should give them some medication. And I go, absolutely not. I just need to take the dish and put it back in the original good environment. The cells will spontaneously revert back to health. Now, that's a plastic dish. And I say, what about a skin-covered dish? And I say, yeah, take your skin-covered body, put it in the wrong environment, the cells are going to get sick, and then you're going to say, oh, I need to take medication. And I'm going, no, you missed the point. Your body's reflection of an illness is actually almost entirely a reflection of your consciousness. Okay, let's go back to a simple fact. Yes, you could have defective genes. Matter of fact, about less than 5% of the population, let's say 5%, uh, arrived on this planet with defective genes and as a result have a defective uh, biology. Okay, fine. We're going to deal with that class of people separately and special because they only constitute about 5%. I want to know about what about the other 95% of the people? I say, oh, they got here with a wonderful set of genes to have a healthy, happy life. And I say, well, if their life is not healthy and happy, can I go back and blame it on the genes? I say, not in this case. So I say, yes, there are a group of people who organically have an issue and they constitute a special group we can work with, but 95% of us, nope, got here with a wonderful, complete, intact set of genes that allow us to have a healthy and, and a happy, prosperous life. If these people in the 95% group get sick, did they get sick because there was something organically wrong? And I go, nope. They are the people that get sick, and the same reason why the Petri dish of cells in the good environment was healthy, but in the bad environment got sick. And then, so what I'm saying is, sickness in the 95% of the people is not of organic origin. It is a, an expression of conscious processing or unconscious processing, as the case may be. And why is that relevant? Because to bring health back to the system, it's not through the use of the drugs. It's to correct the consciousness and return them back to a, a more supportive and uh, harmonious environment. That's the reflection. So uh, an illness is is... The, is a symptom, not a cause. And that's really important because we blame the symptom and say that's the problem. And I say, oh, cancer's a symptom. I go, okay, in less than 10% of the people, cancer has a hereditary linkage. But it appears up to 90% of people now, cancer is connected totally to lifestyle. So you say, oh, the cancer cells were stupid and they caused the illness. I go, uh-uh. Now, for 90% of the people, no, the cancer cells are just a... Uh, uh, you know, they're a complement to, to the life that you're living. Change the way you live, and the cancer will disappear. And this is what, of course, we find in remission cases and all the cases of people, especially now, beginning to report by not going through the conventional treatment, but changing the way they live and changing the way the, you know, the, they believe and, and attitudes. They took back power and, and were able to bring the cells back into an environment that was supportive. I got to tell you something that was so wild that happened in 2008. I have a dear friend of mine that I took to this 85-year-old woman who used to work at the Pentagon as a scientist, and she used to do these things called super prayers. And my dear friend had torn her rotator cuff. And I said to her, you know what? You're either going in for surgery on this, and those surgeries are not really that great, by the way. They often have to go back again and again. Why don't you just come in with me? Let's see if this stuff works. I have no idea. I've never tried it on a health level or a, for something this physical, but we have nothing to lose. Let's go. I held the faith. The prayer was done. She was skeptical, but she was still open enough to go, and I kid you not, Bruce, this woman did not need surgery. She had zero range of motion from a car accident. It was torn in two places. Not a problem ever again. Now, how the heck did that happen is what you're talking about. There's a <laughs> realm exactly. in which you're talking about. Here's another interesting story. Uh, there, there's a thing called arthroscopic surgery where people have knee knee problems and their knees don't work well. And then what they do is they go inside and they flush out the knee joint and scrape the cartilage to smooth it out. Uh, so that, and then these people, all of a sudden, they, you know, they were able to walk a lot better. Well, it was interesting because this one surgeon in Texas was trying to find out was it the washing out of the joint fluid or the scraping that was most effective in making a change. And, uh, when organizing his experiment, uh, the, one of the advisors said, well, you have to do a sham operation. He says, what does that mean? He says, well, you do an operation, it's not, re you don't actually do the operation, just fake it. 
And he was like, what do you mean fake it? I'm a surgeon. We do. We works because we do surgery. So he had been advised, how do you do a sham? So he said, well, basically what they do is they, 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 the person doesn't see the operation because it's draped. Uh, and uh, usually they give a general anesthetic. Uh, uh, but they frequently have a video monitor so you can see the operation. Well, how do they do a sham? Well, the guy actually... When he put the drapes up, he he made two incisions like they normally do to start the operation. But after that, he didn't do anything, but he talked about it. And he actually put up a video, well, of somebody else's operation. Oh, my God. And and the person, you know, went to the operation. And, and so, basically, there was no operation. Now, they do, uh, I think, 180,000 of these operations a year. And I forgot what the cost was. It was like... 30,000, I guess, round number. I don't know what the heck it is, some big number. So you multiply 30,000 times 180,000. You can see how much money we spend. And it turned out when the results came in, there was no difference in any of the experimental sets, <gasps> including the SAM oh, wow. operation, meaning the entire operation procedure was basically placebo effect. It had nothing to do with the operation at all. Matter of fact, the, the patients that just had the little incisions put in did exactly the same in the outcome as any of the patients that went through the entire procedure. So this is about expectation, isn't it, and belief? Exactly. It's about belief system. And uh, I say, well, what is a placebo? Well, placebo is I talk up this new drug. I got this, oh, it's so new, it's purple. It's uh, That's the most exciting drug color. That's the <laughs> modern drug of anything this purple one it's going to heal you look how purple it is it's so great the patient's like oh wow okay and the doctor gives them this purple pill uh with the expectation that oh my god this is going to be this is the newest greatest thing and the significance is the person actually believes the doctor then they get well and then later on you tell them uh, outside of the purple color there was just a sugar pill <laughs> just sugar and it's like well how'd you get well we call it the placebo effect and i go wow what does that mean it's like the anticipation, the intention, the perception, the belief that healing is going to follow through by doing this is what led to the healing, not the actual drug or the medical intervention, such as the arthroscopic surgery. It was the belief that this is how you heal. And so it turned out it was the belief that healed. And, and this is called the placebo effect. Now, medicine has recognized a minimum of one-third. So we start with a minimum of one-third. And up to perhaps two-thirds of all medical interventions are actually the result of the placebo effect. Well, that's a real important number. One-third of the minimum says the entire health care bill of this nation, one-third of it is equivalent of a sugar bill, and look how much we're paying for it. It's placebo. And then I say, well, that's really nice, and people understand the placebo effect, and they're excited by it about it. And basically what it really says is your mind healed you because of a belief that it had. I'll give you another placebo that's amazing. Please do. Uh, it's called Prozac. Prozac in a laboratory test is no different than a sugar pill. Are you serious? Absolutely. It's reported. It's actually in the scientific journals. Uh, the information, of course, was hard to come by because the drug companies did not want to release it. So uh, Erwin Kirsch, a psychologist, University of Connecticut, actually had to go through the Freedom of Information Act to get the oh test God. data, and the <laughs> test data revealed that there was no difference in taking the Prozac or the placebo. But Prozac has a wonderful enhancement factor to placebo for this reason. Regular sugar pill has, you know, you just take a sugar pill, now it's just totally your belief that something's happening. I believe it, I took the pill. Prozac has a little side effect that you can feel tingly in your body. Something's going on. Guess what? The little side effect enhances the placebo effect. Not only did I take the pill, but I feel it's working. That, well, that's like now a double proof that I've done something. And so it works even more effective than a plain sugar pill to some degree because of that side effect. Uh, again, it's only an enhancement of the belief that did that. Oh, okay, so now we talk about one-third to two-thirds of all healing comes from the placebo effect, and now comes the monkey wrench that throws the, everything out, and that is, well, that's the result of a positive belief. Is there any influence of a negative belief? And the answer is, Absolutely, and it's equally powerful. Equally powerful, so that a negative belief, uh, a positive belief can heal you and, 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 you know, from terminal illness, and a negative belief can actually cause you to get sick and can kill you. Uh, and it's called in the science community a nocebo effect. And why is that important? It's the power of belief that controls. 
the direction of the, the control is based on whether it's a positive belief or a negative belief, but they're equally powerful. And I say, why is that important? Because, well, we work hard to generate the placebo effect, but all of us are walking around almost constantly in a nocebo belief system. We're almost all walking around, well, this isn't going to work, and this is hard, and this is, oh, my God, expect the worst, and this, blah, 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 blah. And the point about it is this. If the positive thoughts were the ones that healed you, well, then what the heck do you think all the negative thoughts are doing? And the answer is they're causing the illness and diseases. I think you said in your book, In Spontaneous Evolution, 70% of our thoughts are negative and redundant. Yes, uh, this is a psychological assessment. So it says, as you move forward in your life, uh, what chemistry are you sending to the cells in regard to uh, the chemistry that could provide growth and health in the tissue culture called the skin-covered dish? Or is it chemistry that undermines the health of these cells? And the answer is, what are your thoughts? And when we start to recognize that 70% of them are negative and redundant, then you start to recognize, oh, my God, how can we keep, you know, we keep trying to lead ourselves to health, and yet at the same time we keep shooting ourselves in the foot with our thoughts. Well, I have an interesting dilemma to bring to you. I have a dear friend of mine who found out a year ago that she has a tumor behind her nose. At first they said they don't know what it is. They think it's cancerous. They're not sure. They tried to go in. But even when they didn't know it was cancer, they wanted to do chemo and they wanted to radiate. Okay. So this is a person who believed in complementary medicine, who was into all kinds of anti-aging and other types of remedies. The instant she got connected in with these oncologists, everything she supposedly believed that she transmitted to me went by the wayside. All of a sudden, the doctors were gods. They were the ones who she was going to listen to. She put herself through radiation and chemo, almost died several times because they overdosed her. And I connected her in with someone who does hyperbaric oxygen treatments. It was going to give her 30 treatments. She started her treatments. She was so sick after radiation and chemo, but she started to feel great. The healing started five treatments in. She goes back to her doctor, and the doctor says, well, you know, some types of cancers don't really like oxygen, so we just don't know if that's the one you have. Guess what? She quit all the hyperbaric oxygen treatments, stopped everything. And the doctor said to her, and we may need to go in and cut this now because you could be dead in six months. Oh, yeah. A diagnosis of anything that says you can't do something about it means when you buy that belief, then by definition you will manifest exactly what that belief says. And that's an interesting point of how how are physicians so accurate to know when somebody's going to die? And the answer is because they're the ones that set the date. (laughs) Exactly. Well, see, it's so powerful. When you talked about in your book that children zero through six live in the theta, almost like a hypnotic trance and that their subconscious is on autopilot for taking in information, it's obvious to me that when doctors speak to patients, people are in a trance and accept whatever said to them very much like a child zero through six does. Do you agree? Absolutely. That's the whole idea of it. Look, you see, we have the conscious mind, which is the creative mind connected to your personal identity, your spirit, who you are. We have the subconscious mind, which has programs. The conscious mind is the creative mind. The subconscious mind is the habit mind. The habits were put in primarily before six, the fundamental habits. Now, think about it. Go back to the conventional family. When anybody in the family is sick, what is is the first directive? And the first directive, oh, we got to take so-and-so to the doctor. Mommy has to go to the doctor. Billy, you have to go to the doctor. You are sick. Now, I say, why is this important? Because during the first six years of your life, you're being programmed. You have an innate ability to heal yourself. That was already built in. Look, people healed themselves for a million years before there were medical schools. You know, I mean, there was healing going on all the time. And the fact is you are innately capable of healing. But now you put a belief system in. And what's the belief system? As a child learns in that first six years, anytime anybody's sick, it's not up to that person to heal themselves. If they're sick, they have to go to the doctor. So now what is the program? The program says if I am sick before I heal myself, I have to go to the doctor. And there's another program that go. the same thing goes along with it because think about this as well. When you're a child, uh, we were programmed to the, believe there are professionals who know stuff and we don't. <laughs> so exactly. So if you're a professional, then they know and you don't. So, that, so now you have the doctor who is in charge of your health and the professional. Okay, so now why is this relevant? Because here's the joke. How many people, and so many listeners out there are probably very familiar with this, 
get sick, say, okay, I got to go to the doctor. On the way to the doctor or in the doctor's office, all of a sudden they start to feel good again. And, and that's, the numbers are vast. And I said, why is that so? And the answer was, you were capable of healing yourself before the program. The program said, okay, you can heal yourself, but before you start the healing, you have to go to the doctor. And, and, and the joke part, which I really love, is because people say we have to take you to the doctor, but nobody said the doctor had to do anything. You, what do we do? We have to take you to the doctor. That's the fun part. It's like, oh, if I just go to the doctor, <laughs> then I can start the healing. And that's why people, as I said, will automatically begin the healing effect as soon as they make the commitment to go to the doctor. Because they're now, once you handle step one, which is go to the doctor, step two is the system will then automatically heal itself. And so uh, we then defer to that, that programming and says, we do not heal, we go to the doctor. Now, the part that's next, which is really the critical part, is there are professionals that know things and you don't. So your friend goes in with a conscious awareness, wow, this oxygen stuff is really, really great. And the doctor engages the subconscious program of professional. The doctor says, this is true. Oh, well, who am I? Uh, in my conscious mind, what the hell do I know? I'm not the professional. The doctor's right. What did the doctor say? Oh, that's going to hurt me. I better stop it. Well, basically, and the doctor says, I'm going to die in six months. Like, oh, okay, I set the clock on. I'm going to die in six months because that's what they told me. And, and the whole issue is this. When you operate from the conscious mind, you're operating from your creative powers and your, your spiritual identity. You, you are personally involved. When you're operating from your subconscious mind, you're operating from programs. Since the fundamental programs in your life you got in the first six years, they're not your programs. They were downloaded by other people observing them. And what they say, you put that in your subconscious. Well, now, why is this important? Because when you find out that 95% of your life is actually coming from the unconscious, subconscious programs, then you realize, my God, the fundamental behaviors of your life... Many of them are not even yours. They were downloaded into you from observing other people. So your behavior when you're operating from your subconscious is generally not yours, but is the reflection of programming by other people. So uh, when you're living in your conscious mind, you're living in your, your creative mind. And, uh, and it's a very powerful mind. And when you're living in your subconscious mind, you're living off of programs. And if your fundamental programs came from other people, which they have, uh, then this becomes uh, where we lose the power over our lives. In fact, uh, medical science has revealed that uh, uh, almost all the illnesses we face as adults, uh, like cancer and diabetes, etc., like that, uh, are actually programmed into our consciousness or subconscious mind, actually in the first six years of our lives. That it's the first six years of our life experience that determine our health as adults. That's basically what it comes down to. And the significance is, well, what happened in those first six years? Well, the first six years is programming. Who are you? Uh, how do you work? What is you, you know, are you a healthy person or are you a sickly person? Are you capable or not capable? These are, these are beliefs that we got from other people. Uh, are you in charge of your health? No, doctor's in charge of your health. The doctor's truth, your truth? Yes, because the doctor's professional. Whatever they say, that's my truth. And I say, well, then you take your, your programs and you manifest a life based on the program. It's unbelievable how automatic it is. And I'll tell you something else. I've heard this so many times where doctors will give the instruction to the patient. If you don't do X, which is usually their recommendation or the standard protocol of care, you will die. And I think it's absolutely wrong. It should be against the law, criminalized for a doctor to say that to a patient because that's in God's hands. And also the, the medical profession, hands. which is quite aware of the placebo effect. Yes, is also quite aware of the nocebo effect, meaning that if I have a negative concept or negative belief or attitude about my prognosis, that will manifest if that's what I've been programmed to believe. And that's why the doctor's right, because you gave up your belief and bought into their belief, and so their truth becomes your truth, and your truth is then uh, the chemistry that goes through the body that then manipulates your body to match that truth. And, and it's so critical because... It basically says, what would be the difference? He said, I said, the conscious mind is you, the personal creative mind. And the subconscious mind is the program mind. Okay, and that's where the limitations and disempowerment comes from, from the programs that other people give us. And I say, what would be, you know, just, you know, offhand? What if I lived my life from my conscious mind only and didn't rely on those subconscious programs? What would it be like? And then, How would people know, though, Bruce? How I'm going to tell people you. Know? You ready? Yeah. You ready? Yes. Have you ever fallen deeply in love with somebody? Yes. 
let me ask you, just if you could go back into that time period, when you were in that total absolute love state, which I call the honeymoon, uh, were you healthy? Yes. Okay. Did you have a lot of energy? Yes. Uh, yeah, you probably stayed awake for days, right? Okay. <laughs> uh, was life so beautiful that you really couldn't wait for the next day to have more of it? Indeed. Would I be far off from saying, was that like living heaven on earth? Yes. Okay. Now, no, I'm not far off, right? To say, no, to, you're not far off. I mean, okay. Now, correct. why is that relevant? Because when you are operating from your creative mind, which has your wishes and desires, that's where your wishes and desires are as opposed to the subconscious mind, which has programs. And then, unfortunately, as I said, most of the fundamental programs came from other people, so they're not your wishes and desires. They're other people's beliefs. When you're operating from your conscious mind, that's what created the honeymoon. That's what science has now revealed. When you fall in love like that, instead of, uh, we find out, conventional science shows us, in a day-to-day basis in our regular lives, we operate 5% from our conscious mind and 95% from the subconscious programs. And I say, why is that relevant? And the answer is, because 5% of your life is actually moving where you want it to go, and 95% of your life is moving according to the program. It's almost like gravitational field, then. Yeah, well, that's why the point. And I say, well, why did you have a honeymoon? And the answer is, there was a one period in your life where you essentially operated almost full-time from your conscious mind. And that, since the conscious mind has your wishes and desires, then what did you manifest? A life. There was a total reflection of your wishes and desires to the extent that you created heaven on earth. I said, why did the honeymoon disappear? And the answer is, at some point, when life starts to get crowded in, that's why the conscious mind lets go of the control, because the conscious mind is the thinking mind. And so when you have to start thinking about what you're going to do tomorrow, what you did last week, uh, how you're going to solve the problem, how you're going to pay the rent, and your mind starts thinking about these things, then by definition, your conscious mind gets focused in these thoughts, but that's not, that means that your conscious mind's not paying attention at the current moment, what's going on. The only one that's paying attention now is the subconscious mind. So all of a sudden, when your conscious mind starts thinking, you start playing the subconscious programs. Yeah, but those aren't your programs. Those are from other people. That's why the honeymoon ends. The honeymoon begins because both of you are operating from your conscious creative wishes and desires. And the honeymoon ends when life gets so busy that you, you have to take your conscious mind off the mark, start thinking about all these things, and the moment you're thinking about it, you start engaging in the subconscious behaviors, the programs that were already automatic. And I say, yeah, but those programs fundamentally came from other people. I go, yeah, and that's why it usually takes you right out of that honeymoon and somewhere else, and you lost it. And why is this relevant? Because if you understood what you did, you created the honeymoon. You created health. Energy, happiness, harmony, you created heaven on earth. How? By not deferring to the subconscious programs which came from other people, by operating from your wishes and desires. What's the point? You created that. That means you could have had this your entire life. The only thing is, how come I lost the honeymoon? I said, because when life gets busy and your conscious mind gets off of you being the controller of your wishes and desires and you automatically play the programs of who am I, I am frail and vulnerable, I am, the doctor knows who I am, the doctor tells me what my fate is, these people control you know, these things. Uh, I gave up control and I lost the honeymoon. And then I would just give you a simple little insight. If you could take your wishes and desires as the beliefs in your conscious mind, and program them as the habits in your subconscious mind. Here's the interesting joy moment, and that is if your subconscious mind and your conscious mind then share the same wishes and desires, that means you would live on this planet in heaven every day of your life. With respect to what you know now, everything, all-encompassed, Yeah, it's clear from listening to you and reading your books that if 95% of most of us operate on autopilot, subconscious, and we're non-local beings, after doing remote viewing for five days, not only was I clear that we're non-local beings and that we're not our bodies, but I had evidence of it for the first time in my life. What are you suggesting then for most of us for the deprogramming of the 95% to make more way for the creative mind. Okay, now here comes the problem, and the problem, but it's not a problem. So first I'll I'll mention it as a problem and then show you it's not. And it goes like this. People say, well, look, when did this programming occur? And I say, well, it started in the last trimester of pregnancy. You're (laughs) really downloading a lot of stuff. So the data now suggests that 
50% of our personality is already developed before we are born based on uh, learning the behavioral programs that our mother was experiencing by just recording them like a tape recorder. Can I quickly interject something here in terms of your own cosmological take, which is, do you think or have you thought that some of our programming comes from other lives, times, and places? Yep. Okay, very good. Absolutely. I just wanted to know but where that, you stood. But that programming is through your conscious mind. Okay? It's not your subconscious so much. Your subconscious is is, a, is like a record device that goes into operation in the last uh, stages, uh, you know, the tri- last trimester, okay? Your spirit is what you bring in in your conscious mind. I said that's what's right. between conscious and subconscious. Subconscious, tape recorder. Learn a program, do it automatically. Matter of fact, as I said, 95% of most people's lives is actually just a play out of their tape recorded programs with very little creativity from their consciousness. But their consciousness is altered by their previous life experiences, so it directs your consciousness to seek different things in the world in relation to what you came in with. So uh, I bring that in as a very important part of it, but uh, the first part is basically just programming the subconscious mind. Uh, And it's very interesting because the nature that the programming occurs in the first six years, and once the program's in the subconscious mind, that 95% of your life comes from that, so you become the subconscious program. It's not a new fact. Uh, for 500 years, the Jesuits have, have boasted. They say, give me a child until it's six, and it will belong to the church for the rest of its life. What, are, what were they talking about? They knew then, if I can get the first six years of programming and put those fundamental programs in your subconscious, I don't care what your conscious wishes and desires are. You will inevitably become your subconscious program. So they already knew that. <laughs> now, why is this important? Because... I'm telling you, so we got programmed in the first six years. And then you say, but my consciousness, which according to if you understand, you know, as the biology belief reveals, uh, it's a neurological EEG, electromagnetic function that really uh, becomes a predominant brain state after six. So before six, you're really not in a state of consciousness. You're actually in a hypnagogic trance, theta, uh, vibrational frequency, theta of the brain is uh, hypnosis. So that's how you download all these behaviors by just observing them and downloading them. Boom, boom, boom. So now you say, well, heck, I wasn't consciously even there with all these programs. How the heck do I know what's in my subconscious? You say, oh, I'll go to a psychologist. And I go, don't do that. <laughs> it's not necessary. It's I call it the long road to China. Absolutely. And it's pretty destructive in many cases because you have to now relive each one of those painful experiences, which is just like pushing the button every time you have to relive it. That's exactly. why boxes of tissues get used. Uh, you say, well, wait, then how do I know what my subconscious programs are? And this is the, now the simple and joyful part. Since your life is 95% a printout of your subconscious, your life is your subconscious. Point. The things that work for you and come easily into your life, they come easily because you have programs in your subconscious that encourage that. In contrast, anything you struggle with, anything you have to put a lot of effort in, anything you have to work hard to achieve, that extra effort, that extra work is going in because basically you already have an existing program that doesn't support where you want to go. So your extra work is to try to overcome the program, which is frequently very difficult. So more or less it's associated with a lot of work but not a lot of conclusion. Are you giving us a way out? Because <laughs> I'm feeling jailed in the subconscious. Now, I will say yeah, one well, thing. Okay, so now you look at your life and you say, okay, these things I have, great, they're wonderful, I love them, great. I don't need to change subconscious. Oh, this part of my life, I'm, I'm struggling. Ah, okay, now I say, okay, now you know what the issue is. It's, you're not being supported by whatever that destination you're looking for. So now the best part is you already have an insight as to what programs you need to change. What is it I need to change the subconscious? Uh, because I start to find that these are the trouble points. So it means you don't have to go back and find out who did what to who, your mom did this, your dad did that, your best friend undermined you, blah, blah, blah. Those are stories that are irrelevant. It's, what is the net result? The answer is you're living it. So now that you're living it, you want to change some of those. I say, can you change them? And the answer is, well, boy, if I didn't, I know you'd hang up in a second. <laughs> Why would I want to hear that now? But, uh, of course, I want to offer you the wonderful story. Of course, you can change anything, but you have to know how to change it. And this is where then everything falls apart, and then falls apart in this reason. Number one, there's almost a general consensus belief that if your conscious mind becomes aware of something, then your subconscious mind shall now know it as well. And it turns out 
First big mistake, absolutely not, not true at all. The two minds learn in different ways. The conscious mind can learn in one way, and it will have no impact on the subconscious mind, all because the subconscious mind doesn't learn that way. So, for example, the conscious mind is the creative mind. That's the one that could read the self-help book, you know? So I read the self-help book, and, and I go, ah. Oh, uh, oh, look, there's new insight, there's new awareness. I've just educated my consciousness. Wow, this would be great to live this life. This would be so wonderful. And you read the book. I give you a test just to be assured that you learned it. And you get, oh, you got 100 on the test. You knew all the principles. And then I say, well, now that you've read the book, you know all the principles. Has your life changed? The answer is no. I say, okay, you go to the lecture, same thing. Oh, my God, I learned all this wonderful information. Uh, my conscious mind's just been educated by all of the stuff I just went to. And I said, now you got all this awareness. Did your life change? No. And the, and the reason is this. The conscious mind, being creative, can learn by reading a book, going to the lecture, reviewing a history, whatever. The conscious mind becomes aware. I say, well, how come the subconscious mind doesn't pick it up? And I say, because it doesn't learn that way. How does the subconscious mind learn? Well, there are two fundamental ways and a new way that's really interesting. So let me tell you the two fundamental ways. I go, how did it learn in the history of programming your subconscious mind? Well, I say the first part of programming my subconscious mind because my brain was in a state of hypnosis. I go, okay, that's one. <laughs> you want to train the subconscious mind, then you have to do a state of self-hypnosis, like subliminal tapes and stuff like that, which are, are very effective at doing that. I say, so, uh, or see a hypnotherapist of some kind. Okay, that, that's one way of doing it. I say, okay, that was the first six years of my life. My subconscious learned by being in a theta state, which is just downloading through hypnosis, and that's how I got the program. If I get back into that theta state, I can download new programs on top of the old programs. I can rewrite that. That's cool. I say, okay, after six, how did the subconscious mind learn? I go, oh, after six, it learned totally by habit and repetition. Repetition, repetition, over and over again. How'd you learn ABCD? You had to say it until you were blue in the face. Every day you get a little further than you did the day before. You know, and you get further and further, and finally you get to Z. Now that you've done it, do you have to repeat this again to, to, to learn the ABCs? No, you already got them. Oh, how did I get them? Every day I had to do it. Every day I repeated it. It turns out that creating a habit by repetition is the next fundamental mechanism of programming your life. So basically it says you want to change something, then you have to create a new habit and repeat it religiously as repetition and in a period of time. Now is this also in the thought realm? Is it writing? Is it speaking something? Are you Every way you put it in is another, it's like the more ways you put it in, the more profoundly the impact will be. Okay, the more profound impact. The, every different way, visually, auditory, kinesthetically, every different input that takes the same message and puts it in expands the, the ability to get that uh, information downloaded. So that's very critical. Multiple inputs, same way. Are there some programs that you might want to share with us that you realized that you had through your own programming from zero to six that you got in touch with? Yeah. Oh. I'll tell you one right away. <laughs> no, uh, number one was I tried to write the biology of belief for uh, 15 years before I got it out. What happened for 15 years? Well, I'd start the book. I actually got three different starts, three different ways of going about it, got halfway through each one, and then it petered out. And I could never figure out what the hell's the story here. Why am I having so much trouble? When I did an assessment, uh, which was a muscle testing assessment of my subconscious, I realized I had a belief that I already knew, but I didn't realize that that was the cause. And that is, my career was based on my my being validated by my colleagues. Okay, that's how you become a scientist and all that stuff. And what my subconscious recognized that by writing the book that I was writing, which was totally antagonistic to all my colleagues and peers, that I would lose my reputation and validation as a scientist. And so my subconscious was very helpful by what every time I started getting here, getting a book done, sabotage the whole thing would just it would stop. I couldn't write the book anymore because wow. it was protecting me. Okay, that was that was a big one. Uh, an, another one that was real exciting because it profoundly changed my life was when I owned the nature of spirituality, which I didn't own as a scientist, but then saw through the nature of understanding the cells. 
um, I, I had a, a great epiphany at that moment, and the epiphany was, I asked myself, uh, you know, in my scientific, rational mind, now that I, I bought into, oh my God, there's a spirit, because I saw a mechanism of how that would work, uh, and then I owned it, because I was like, two plus two is four, the science I saw said, oh my God, these, these are antennas pulling in a, an identity from outside. Um, uh, I asked myself a very, really profound question to myself. I said, well, my God, uh, you know, I never believed in spirituality. Now I see that there's a spiritual source. Then I said, but wait, why have a spirit and a body? And uh, I questioned that. And, and it was interesting because the answer welled up from inside, uh, and it came out in the form of a question, which makes me laugh. Uh, I asked myself, why have a spirit and a body? And I could feel the answers coming up from my cells, and the cells sort of said, Bruce, if you're just a spirit, what does chocolate taste like? <laughs> and all of a sudden I started to realize, oh my God, the physical body is a mechanism. It is. That's the biochemical, genetic, cellular mechanism that does what? It has life experiences and picks them up by the nervous system. But what does the nervous system do? It translates them into energetic vibrations. If the information is translated into neurological flashes of electrical activity. And it's the electrical activity that my spirit reads. So the, the biological body is like a virtual reality suit. Spirit has memory, but it doesn't have eyes and it doesn't have a nose, can't taste the chocolate, can't see the sunset, can't feel what being in love is about. But if the spirit gets into the body and the body translates these experiences into awareness, and the spirit, the spirit now has a memory of those awareness, that awareness, okay? So I realized, oh my God, the whole idea of having the body was to, to sense the world, to taste it, touch it, smell it, feel it, love it, you know, do all that kind of stuff. And I realized my programming as a male was what? As a male was not to be sensitive. And that's why women get so upset with us is because why? Well, we were programmed not to feel things. Okay, look, you know, how much can you hit me before I cry? That's a boy's kind of thing, right? Sure. You know? uh, why was that relevant? I realized, oh, my God, my entire programming disconnected me from having the sensory experience that women have because that's part of their experience. Men, that's not part of the experience. Men is shut down that sensory so you're not sensitive, you're not a sissy. And it's like when I woke up to that reality, it's like, oh, my God. God, I wasted all those years. <laughs> and it sort of, sort of said at that moment a commitment that said, from this moment on, I'm going out there to taste it and touch it and feel it and roll around in it because this is what I can do while I'm alive. I can carry the memory of it with me to the next level, but while I'm alive, uh, i got to do that. And so uh, I, I've learned to, to become part of this environment and, and ultimately recognized to me my personal experience that this is what heaven is all about. This is heaven. This is an opportunity to come in to a physical reality and manifest a dream, to create from, from an imagination, to experience and sense and taste and touch. You do not have those after you leave the body because that's what the body provides. And then when I realized it and I thought, oh, my God, all the old stories of when we leave here, we die, we'll go to heaven. And I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, boy, do we miss that one. This is heaven. Why? Well, I say, what is heaven to you? And you give me a creation story of this is what you would like, all the wonderful things in your heaven. Uh, <laughs> I saw a show about this guy. He says, yeah, uh, uh, what would you be your heaven? He says, oh, you know, he loved duck hunting. He says, oh, it would be duck hunting every day, going out there and then duck hunting. And then the guy said, that was like, he says, oh, your heaven happens to be a duck's hell. <laughs> I go, well, yeah. That's funny. Uh, you know, but what was the point? What, what is heaven? What was something you wanted to create? It was whatever vision you thought was that would be heaven. I say, what do you think this place is? This is a place where you get into this body, and you can create anything, and you can create heaven. And that's what I said, what the honeymoon effect was. What was the honeymoon effect? You created heaven. And I said, yeah, but that was what the whole intention of being here was all about. Then how come we're living in this other thing that's not so heaven-like? I said, whose program are you living by? Ah, go back to the Jesuit story. You have a great joie de vivre. Well, of course, because Wonderful it joie de vivre. for all the years it was closed. Once you start to sense and taste this world, you want more and more. Why? Man, this is your opportunity. you got, you got to just love it. <laughs> Ta 
talk about the Heart Math Institute. We're interviewing them next month about what they found out about the heart because you mentioned it in Spontaneous Evolution about how love is real and biochemically measurable. Can you just say something about that? Yeah, uh, basically, you know, can you visualize the chakra system? Yes. We have um, seven chakras, three above the heart and three below the heart. The three below the heart are the physiological chakras, the physical body chakras, things about everything in your physical experience. The three chakras above the heart are consciousness chakras. And what it says is when you bring your consciousness and your body awareness together, they focus on the heart. It's the heart that, that is one of our most important sensory organs. Uh, when I had my great epiphany, I was a scientist for 40, you know, about 40 years, uh, 30 some years by that point or something. And, uh, I had lived in my head. All of my work came from my rational thinking, conscious mind head. But the interesting thing was when the reality of, oh, my God, I'm a spiritual entity and the mechanism of the cell is not controlled by genes like I was teaching and all, I saw this new thing. You know what happened? It, it was my heart that blew out. I mean, I had what I call a heart orgasm, uh, meaning this. I spent all my years in my head. Everything that came came from thinking and processing and head work. When this truth came in, it ignited my heart. My heart ached with so much joy. Tears were running out of my eyes. And it was like, oh, my God, I could feel this thing in my chest. Up to that moment, I never had a personal experience of feeling it that way. I, my head was always the source of everything. When I opened up, I realized, oh, my God, the, the truth was coming through the heart, more or less. It was a connection to the all that is. It, it's, uh, as the heart math will, people will tell you that, we always think of the heart as a motor, a pump that pumps things. And there's a nerve that goes from the brain to the heart called the vagus nerve. And most, for the longest history, we thought, oh, yeah, the, the brain is sending information to control the beat of the heart. And as heart math studies, will, you know, you'll find out is that, my God, it's not just motor nerves coming from the brain to the heart. The vagus has sensory nerves coming from the heart going to the brain. Matter of fact, I think there are more sensory nerves going to the brain than motor nerves coming from, from the brain. So it turns out the heart is another of our receptor systems. And when we start operating from the heart, we're operating from a, a, a whole different field in awareness and of information. Uh, and, and that was a real wake-up call for me because I had spent my time in my head. So learning to put your head and your heart into harmony is a very powerful process because the electrical activity of the brain, uh, when, when carried by the heart, is amplified. And so if I say, if I could put a probe outside your head called magnetoencephalograph, I could read your brain action from outside of your head. But it fades very quickly in distance from your head. The, the, the sensitive instruments a few inches away later won't read that, that brain activity. Uh, and then I say, but about the heart? Oh, I say, oh, the heart, I could put a probe uh, 12 meters away from you and can read the electrical activity of your heart. It's so powerful. So uh, what was the nature of heart math? Heart math says, what if you took the electrical activity of your thoughts and then uh, you carried them with the power of the heart? It would amplify that, and you would then be leading with your heart. Uh, so what would be the difference? And, and so in a lecture, I give an analogy. I show a musician playing an acoustic guitar in front of about a dozen people. I say, oh, these dozen people have privy to this wonderful music. And then I show an amphitheater, 25,000 people in it. The guy playing acoustic guitar on the stage uh, it, uh, would only be heard by people in the first row. But if you amplify it, people in the last row can hear it. So I say, what's the, what's the relationship? I say, the music coming from this musician is, let's say, the music from his consciousness. But to carry that music throughout the entire amphitheater, he had to hook it to these powerful amplifiers that send the message all the way out further. My suggestion that what HeartMath is really involved with is recognizing you take your consciousness, which influences your just immediately around you, but if you mix it with your heart's drive, then you broadcast your consciousness to a wider field and have a greater influence out in the world. So it's an animating... Animating, amplifying. Yes. Wow. And, that, and that's why uh, bringing your heart and mind together is 
so much more powerful than just keeping a thought in your head. Spontaneous Evolution, Our Positive Future, and A Way to Get There from Here is a huge book. You and Steve talk about so much, and there's so much still to cover. I'd like to invite you back to It's Rainmaking Time for a part two, because I feel like we just got through part one yeah, of laying the ground. So talk about. There's so much. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking with, learning from, and listening to Bruce Lipton, he is the author of The Biology of Belief, Unleashing the Power of Consciousness, Matter and Miracles, and Spontaneous Evolution, Our Positive Future, and a Way to Get There from Here. Bruce, I really want to thank you for being with us. And all of you listening can go to BruceLipton.com and SpontaneousEvolutionTheBook.com. Correct, Bruce? I think that's it. Thank you so much for being here. really like to thank the listeners because um, everyone is listening by definition, is seeking new information in a world that's in a process of change. And by that definition, all of you represent cultural creatives. How are we going to create a sustainable culture is to entertain new ideas and new thinking. And so thank you so much for being open to new ideas. And again, I hope some of the information can help us turn this whole thing around and so that we can all experience that heaven on earth. Indeed. It's rainmaking time.